Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 33. If you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there uh, with me. And the big idea of this passage today is this. That the husband's duty and role in marriage is to love his wife in a way that emulates Christ's love for the church. The duty and role of a godly husband in marriage is to love his wife in a way that emulates Christ's love for the church. Now for me, I look uh, to my parents as my model for marriage. In fact, today, September 11th, a long time ago, my mom would not have wanted me to reveal the date, but my mom uh, was born on September 11th. Uh, She went home to be with the Lord two and a half years ago. Uh, But this is a day that I remember perhaps a little differently than than most of us do. I remember my mom. But as I said, my mom and dad were my model for marriage. I remember watching, ever since I can remember, watching my dad love my mom. And in fact, one of my earliest memories, and I'm not kidding, this is carved into my brain, it's very vivid, has to do with my dad's love for my mom. I remember standing in a bedroom and watching my dad vacuum. Well, that might not seem very remarkable uh, to you, especially in this day and age when most of us rightly understand that gender roles in the home are not necessarily defined by duties like cleaning the house or changing the oil in the car. But even at a young age, I had picked up on how remarkable it was for my dad to vacuum. You see, he grew up in a classic male-dominated culture, a a culture that is similar, in fact, to the one that Paul is writing to in Ephesians and uh, uh, into this culture that he is speaking into. It's very similar, a very male-dominated culture. And so dad's uh, parents, they did love each other, uh, for sure, as he looked to his parents for for some example, but granddaddy apparently embraced the classic misunderstanding of submission and headship, which for him really just meant making my grandmother do all the stuff that he didn't want to do. You see, to him, in essence, my grandmother was his servant and he was the master. And so he did all of the manly stuff. You know, he spent the money and he had the say about how everything was done in the home, no matter how inconvenient or hurtful it was to my grandmother. And then he would come home after a hard day at work and dirty up the house for her to clean all over again, thoughtlessly. He would do this and the cycle would begin again, and so on and so forth. So to make a long story short, the reason I remember this so vividly about watching my dad vacuum is because he was and is a very manly man. As a teenager, he worked on his dad's sawmill. And this is back in the days when you did everything by hand, including cutting down the trees. He played football in in high school. He was drafted into the army and did his duty. And then after that, after he was married to my mom for years and years and years, he provided for her and my brother and me in a job that he often did not enjoy. And when he was home, he fixed stuff. And he changed the oil in the cars. But he also vacuumed. He vacuumed. And that's because... That's because my dad loved my mom. 
Even though in the culture that my dad grew up in, vacuuming the house was a horribly unmanly thing to do, dad has always understood that to honor God in his marriage and to love my mom, to be a real man, to be a real husband, he needed to vacuum. In other words, he was doing far more than just some housework. What my dad was doing when he vacuumed and when he sought out and valued my mom's opinion, when he made sure that he and mom were in unity about how to raise my brother and me, what he was doing is loving his wife in a way that emulates the love that Christ has for his church. And mom had deep respect for dad as a man and and as a husband. Dad was clearly the head of our family. But dad was never, ever the master. And that's because dad always put my mom first. He valued her intellect. He cherished her wisdom. He made sure that every single one of her needs was met. And so my mom and dad loved and respected each other in their different roles. And they were a great team. And this year, they would have celebrated their 59th wedding anniversary. But brothers and sisters they give us a really good idea of how to understand what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today through Paul, that a godly husband loves his wife in a way that emulates the love of Jesus Christ for the church. When we were in Ephesians back in July, we took a look at the wife's submission in verses 20 through 2 through 24 of chapter 5. Today we consider the passages that come after that in verses 25 through 33. And I think today that some of us might even need to reconsider what we think we hear in these words about how God defines who a husband is supposed to be and who a wife is supposed to be. We might even be thinking about marriage like my granddaddy did. Or our temptation might be just to dismiss this passage as old school patriarchal tyranny. But I've got to tell you that both of these views miss the mark by a long shot. As we saw last time, being married God's way begins with what we read in verse 21, that we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Circle that in your Bibles. This is the the principle of mutual submission that governs our lives in the church and in the family. In verses 22 through 24, there were three simple but challenging points about a wife's role and duty in marriage. The Christian wife, number one, willingly submits to her husband because she loves Jesus Christ. Number two, the husband is the head of the wife. And number three, the marriage relationship is like the church's submission to to Jesus Christ. The wife's submission to her husband is like the church's submission to Jesus Christ. And so having already considered a godly wife's submission, today we meditate together on the husband's love, his role and duty in marriage in verses 25 through 33. So again, as we turn to our passage, the big idea is right there in verse 25. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. The husband's duty and role in marriage is to love his wife in a way that emulates Jesus Christ's love for the church. 
This is the big idea. But in the rest of the passage, Paul explains what he means. Verses 27 and 26 and 27, Paul wants us to see how Christ's love impacts the church and our wives. Verses 28 through 30, Paul wants us to see that a godly husband's love for his wife is deeply personal. Verses 31 through 32, Paul wants us to see how such a godly marriage is a representation of Christ's union with the church. And then in verse 33, he reiterates the big idea that a husband should love his wife. And then he brings us full circle all the way back to verse 22. And he reminds wives to respect and submit to their husbands. And so the Holy Spirit through Paul is showing us that marriage itself is a high calling since God designs it to be his living representation of of how Christ made us, the church, one with him. That's what marriage is. It's a representation of his union with us. And so just like we did last time, I want to invite my bride, Leslie, uh, up here. Uh, She is going to join me uh, in reading this whole passage and she's going to read the part that has to do with wives and I'm going to read the parts that have to do with husbands. So here's the part that we looked at last time in Ephesians. We're going to begin in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then here's the part that we're going to focus on today, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. Thank you. That is the word of the Lord. So what do we make of all of this? Well, as we, as we dig into this, as we begin to consider all of this, just imagine if you were one of the Gentiles who first heard these words. They would be a shock to your system. And to understand this, all you really have to do is multiply my granddaddy's understanding about marriage several times, and then you have a good idea of how you as a man would view the women of Ephesus. And that's because as a Greek man, you would consider women by nature to be intellectually inferior to men. And your primary relationship, in fact, with women would be physical. Your wife would be little more than common property. And her primary duty would be to produce children. 
In marriage, the basis of your relationship with your wife would be your domination as the husband, which ideally, as some philosophers of the day urged, ideally it would be mild and generally favorable, but of course, it almost never was. Marriages were arranged, often purely on the basis of financial concerns. Nobody ever asked whether the bride and groom loved each other. Often they would, had never even met. This was sort of an ancient version of that TV show, Married at First Sight. In Greco-Roman culture, marriage was not holy matrimony. Whether your married, marriage lasted depended entirely on whether you and your wife wanted it to. Wasn't any moral question involved at all. But at the same time, the husband was always the master. Not just dominant, but domineering. He was in control and in charge of his wife. And the wife submitted because she had to. And so then when we look at verses 22 through 24, this makes what we saw in those verses incredible. The very idea that a wife willingly submits to her husband, not because he's in charge, but because she loves Jesus Christ and wants nothing more than to honor Christ in order to bless her husband. This is really radical stuff because it means that the husband is not the master. He is not the king. She is bowing before the king of kings, the real king, in order to bring glory to Christ with her attitude and behavior. But verse 25, now we're really getting into something because Paul is turning his attention to the husbands. And look what he says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is unheard of in the pagan world. Marriage then was based on essentially what you can do for me. Sounds awfully familiar for today, doesn't it? That's the pagan view of marriage today. What are you going to do for me? I'll stick around as long as you do it. But here Paul is saying that a godly husband's relationship with his wife isn't based on his own domination, but on what he can do for her through Jesus Christ. And what a godly husband can do for his wife in being married God's way is incredibly profound. And so Paul is saying here to love your wife as Christ loved the church. We can, we can remember how in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul affirms that love is the highest virtue. And that's because God's love for us is his reason to save us. This is a love that he put into action when he sent his son to die on the cross. And then in the same way, our faith is also rooted in love. In Ephesians 3.17, our faith also works through the love that we have for Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.6. And so then it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That the natural outworking of our faith and of Christ's love for us, our love for him, is to love others, right? And most especially when a godly man loves his wife. And in 1 Corinthians 13, again, Paul shows us what love looks like as a verb, not a feeling. Love is self-sacrificing. It's patient and kind. These are the kinds of things that godly love does. And so that 
causes us to understand that familiar passage that we read just a little bit ago in Philippians. It causes us to understand it a little bit more. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is exactly the kind of love that Paul has in mind when he exhorts us husbands to love our wives. Our wives should be the, the recipient of our esteem. We should find great joy in them as we look to their interests and as we count them as more significant than ourselves. And so Paul, in verse 25 of our passage, is showing us the, simply showing us the other side of the same coin of marriage. That just as a godly wife submits to her husband out of reverence for Christ, well, there's, there's something that the husband does as well. The husband has a loving duty before God, too, out of reverence for Christ. And that duty, that responsibility, that joy is to love his wife by putting his wife first. But hang on a second. Didn't we just read a few minutes ago in verse 23 that I'm the head of my wife? I mean, for the husband is the head of the wife, it says. Doesn't that mean that Leslie is the one who's supposed to serve me? Doesn't that mean that I'm in charge, that I'm the significant one? Well, to understand this, I want to remind you uh, how over the last uh, three weeks in his excellent series on the Trinity, Pastor John has laid out the principle of the complementary roles of our one God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I strongly recommend that series to you. I encourage you to listen to that online if you were not here because those principles have a great deal to do with understanding what Paul is saying right here in Ephesians. You see, just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit endeavor always to bring glory to one another, we should be doing the same thing as we mutually submit to one another in church, in this body, in this fellowship, in, and among other believers in town, but also in our homes, in our, with our wives, even as we fulfill our different God-given roles. You see, our, our, our different roles are not about privilege or power. They're about revering Jesus Christ. And so just as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfectly united and in harmony in their unique roles, so much so that they are one, our unity in and through Christ comes about in the same way when we willingly accept our roles that God has given us and when we strive to understand exactly what those roles mean. And so with this scriptural concept of mutual submission in mind as we read about the headship of husbands in verse 23. Well, first, we have to certainly recognize that there is a sense of authority in headship. The husband is the head in the same sense that Christ is the head of the church. As the body of Christ, the church, we do what Christ says, and we do so in union with the rest of the body. Just as the human body obeys the head, we willingly obey uh, Christ as who is the head of the church. But what epitomizes this headship and authority? What is it about this authority that compels us? What defines 
headship and authority in a biblical Christian sense. Does Christ rule with an iron fist? Does he make us obey him like an overseer would have done to his slaves right here in Fauquier County 150 years ago or so? No. No. That's that's why Paul explains in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What defines the headship of Jesus Christ is his love. There's a 19th century uh, pastor and commentator named Reverend David Thomas. And he asserts that Jesus Christ rules the church not by force, but by love, by the royalty of his character, the sublimity of his thoughts, the divine grandeur of his aims. And so then he goes on to say that the church bows lovingly to his authority because of the supremacy of his excellence. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of the headship of Jesus Christ. You see, what defines the headship of our Lord is grace-filled love. Perfect, sacrificial, humble love that distinguishes and epitomizes his royal character. It is the perfect character of Christ that is expressed in perfect love that draws us to him and compels us to love and obey him in return. A love that is proven by his actions. And in fact, Jesus even says in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so husbands and husbands-to-be, as the head of your wife, you are her servant. You are a servant whose example is the perfect one that we have in Jesus Christ and in what he did for you and me. You see, the goal in marriage, brothers, is not to make our wives obey, not to make them obey but to love our wives. And loving our wives is not just about what you feel. It's about what you do. It is something that you do that just materializes from your character that has been built as you grow in your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you cannot be a truly loving husband without the love of Christ. You cannot truly love your wife outside of loving her in the same way that Christ has loved you. And so we need the Holy Spirit's help, don't we? To love our wives requires an active and robust, ongoing, genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's that relationship with Christ that guards us from the pitfalls, the traditional pitfalls regarding marriage. Traditionally, our culture and even the church universal have embraced my granddaddy's view of marriage. And even the church has caused great damage in some of the strange conclusions that we have come to over submission and headship. And we have made the husband the master and the wife the slave. 
And so because of that, because of that misunderstanding, we find ourselves today swinging a knee-jerk reaction in the other direction, and we just want to obliterate passages like this. We want to obliterate being married God's way because we so misunderstand it. But if we revere Jesus Christ, then we do want to be married God's way. We want to define the roles of the husband and wife as God defines them. And by the way, we're not talking about who does the dishes and who fixes the lawnmower. It frankly doesn't matter a single bit who does that. That's something that we work out with our spouse. What we are talking about is what God's design is for marriage, is the way that God defines our roles in Scripture. And so it behooves every single believer to strive to understand the headship that Paul is talking about. And the best way to do that, as Paul is bringing to mind here, is to understand Christ's headship in terms of his love. How exactly Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What in the world does that mean? What is it that Christ did to give himself up that we would call it love? I suspect that most of us hear something like this when we read verse 25. Well, you know, Christ felt passionately about the church and and he was willing to die for it. And well, so he did. He did. And and then most of us husbands think along the lines of this. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm willing to die for my wife, and so I'm loving her. I'm, yeah, I'm willing to do that. So, you know, if things get really bad, and, and I have to protect Leslie from the zombie apocalypse, I would, I'd be willing to die for her. But the thing is, for 99.999999 ad finitum item, however you say that, for 99.9% of us, We don't have to worry about the zombie apocalypse, do we? As noble of an idea as it is for us to die for our wives, it is an entirely theoretical proposition for the vast majority of us, including those whom Paul was writing to. And so I don't think Paul is asking us to daydream about being a knight in shining armor. Yes, I do think that Paul is saying that we need to be willing to die for our wives if necessary, of course. But far more than that, what he wants us to to think about is how Christ gave his life in a much more profound and complete sort of way. That is, what Paul is saying is that Christ lived for the church too. And how he lived is as important and significant as how and why he died. So think about this with me. What did Christ do? What did he do? How did he give himself up? Well, here's what he did. We read it earlier, Philippians 2, 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so he emptied himself in that he willingly set aside some of his authority as God, even though he never ceased to be God. Christ left heaven, in fact. And so as we see down in verse 31 in a little bit, that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, so Christ left his father for a while to become one with his church, to love us. 
And so in leaving heaven for a time, Christ added humanity to his deity. He voluntarily humbled himself. He set aside the exercise of some of his divine attributes. If you've been through Fundamentals of the Faith with Pastor John or me, this is starting to sound a little familiar. He set aside his glory, John 17, 5. He set aside his independent authority, Philippians 2, 7. He set aside the open display of his divine attributes, Matthew 24, 36. He set aside his eternal riches, Romans 8, 9. And while he was on earth, he set aside his face-to-face relationship with his Father. And so Christ submitted to his Father, and he became a servant. And Christ, the God himself, became a man. The same kind of limitations that we have. This would be sort of like you or me deciding to become an ant. And so God himself leaves heaven to live in this dark world to experience all the same sickening stuff that we experience, even temptation. And these are things that he never experienced in heaven. And of course, all the while, he lived a sinless life, and they call him a blasphemer, and they nail him to a cross. And our Lord willingly gives himself up, of course, in that ultimate way as he fulfills the will of his Father. And why did he do all of this? He did it to bring glory to the Father by saving his church, by loving his bride even before we loved him. That is love. And this is the kind of love that we need to have for our wives, brothers. We are called to give ourselves up to live for our wives, to live as new creatures who are so devoted to Christ that even our very presence with our wife becomes a joy and a blessing to her. So that because of our devotion to Christ, we are fully devoted to our wives. Their needs come first. We count them as more important than ourselves all day and every day. And so we, as husbands, are called to be servants, servants of the Most High God, as we serve our wives by loving them in the same way that Jesus Christ loves us as a church. And so as we turn to the rest of our passage, we can see the impact of Christ's love and how a godly marriage is a representation of Christ's union with the church. First, we look at verses 26 and 27, and we see how the love of Christ impacts the church and through our devotion to him, through us as husbands, our love for our wives has a similar kind of impact. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, verses 26 and 27, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here's a question for us brothers. How did Christ make you and me spotless? How did God cleanse us? 
Did he, did he just give us commandments to follow, but leave us to our doom when we could not obey them? Did he just pour out his anger on us and hope that we would wake up and smell the coffee? Well, that's not what my Bible says in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so likewise, brothers, it is not our anger or our rules or our control or even our neglect that makes our wives holy. It is the work of Jesus Christ by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in us as you and I, brothers, get to be the vessels of God's love and mercy and grace to our wives. We get to carry the love of Jesus Christ to them, to show it to them. And to say, this is our Lord, this is Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? We do it by the continuous washing of the water with the Word. This is just a beautiful way of saying the Word of God. And we are washed by it. We are cleansed by it. And so having been washed by the Word ourselves, we live the truth of the Gospel for our wives, for her to see and experience as we pray together, as we seek the face of God every single day. And so in fully participating in the gospel, we husbands preach the truth of God into our, our wives. And the word of God never returns void. Amen? God's word always blesses, always purifies, always convicts and encourages. It always draws a believer close to God. That's the impact of the love of Jesus Christ. And as we as husbands get to be vessels of that love as we serve our wives. And then in verses 28 through 30, Paul wants us to see that a godly husband's love for his wife is deeply personal. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. You see, that's what Christ did for us. He nourishes and cherishes us as the church. And so we're called to do the same thing as husbands for our wives. You remember that Eve came from Adam's rib, and so Adam, in great joy, declares, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so that passage from Genesis 2.23 shows us that since God created woman from Adam's rib, that God wants us to understand that men and women are of the same essence. Not only are all women equally human, but in a godly marriage, our love for our wives becomes a deeply personal thing. 
because we're not loving something other than ourselves or inferior to ourselves. Instead, we are loving our own flesh and bone. You remember as believers, we are members one of another, as it says in Ephesians 4.25. And this has a deep impact on the most intimate area of our married lives. 1 Corinthians 7.4 For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Oh boy, we really like that as husbands, don't we? That sounds pretty good. But we've got to remember something. That the full counsel of Scripture reminds us that we're talking about mutual submission. Unity, oneness, equality before God, and and in the sense of our headship, we are the servants of our wives. And so that's why Paul finishes the thought in the rest of the verse. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so brothers, husbands, as the servant... What do you think the most loving thing to do is when your wife says no and you say yes? Are you willing to make that kind of sacrifice? You see, this goes into every area of our lives as man and wife. Our love for Jesus Christ has an impact on us. It has an impact on our wives. And so how we demonstrate that love to our wives is incredibly important. And all of this sheds new and very radical light on the pagan perspective, doesn't it? That women are property and that the husband's interaction with his wife is almost exclusively physical. Or not to mention the modern view today that that a woman's body is her own no matter what. Or a man's body is her own even if we're married. Instead, what, what it means to love our wives God's way is that even intimacy becomes about our relationship to one another, where we treat our wives with the utmost indignity. And all this means that we don't look down on our wives, but we see them as fellow image bearers of God, whom God sees as our equal, and so we see them in the same way. You remember Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we're all the same in God's eyes in terms of how he values us. Our wives are the most precious being on the planet for us as husbands because we are their servant. We are here to bless them and to nourish them. And so we do that. We nourish and cherish our wives. We look after them in in the same way that we would ourselves. And of course, the way that we do that is by taking care of our own relationship with Jesus Christ with a living and vital, genuine relationship with him so that our faith speaks into the hearts of our wives because this is the most caring and loving and beautiful, nurturing thing that we can do for them. It is worth more than a whole bag full of diamonds. 
And so this is the same kind of care that Christ has for the church. We've, went over, we've gone over what he did for us and we're united with him because of his deeply personal love for us. He loved us by becoming flesh and living a perfect life and by giving up his flesh to die for our sake so that we can be his bride. And that leads directly into the next point in verses 31 and 32, where Paul wants us to see how a godly marriage is a representation of Christ's union with the church. And Paul quotes from Genesis 2.24, beginning in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he goes on to say, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, Genesis 2.24 establishes God's institution of marriage. But Paul wants us to grasp the full meaning of this, that marriage shows us that Christ is one with the church, and that just as the church has an incredibly magnificent purpose that is spelled out in Ephesians 3.10, the purpose of which is to make the manifold wisdom of God known in the heavenly places. Well, a godly marriage has a, a grand and glorious purpose too. And its purpose is to illustrate Christ's union with the church, not only for one another, but for this body of believers and to everyone who is looking on. That's the mystery that, Paul is, that, that God is revealing to us through Paul, that Christian marriage itself is a, is a metaphor for the selfless, grace-filled, sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. And that just as godly marriage means one flesh, so is Christ one with his body, the church. So what do we take home from all of this? This is a lot to digest. Well, Paul has the take home for us in the very last verse of our passage. He puts it simply. Verse 33, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see, Paul wants to make sure we don't miss the practical point here and the point that has to do with our lives this afternoon and tomorrow and every day of our lives. And no matter what our marital status, what this means is that we have a picture of how Christ is in union with this church. And we also have a very clear notion of what a godly marriage ought to look like. Husbands, our mission is abundantly clear. The husband's duty and role in a godly marriage is to love his wife in a way that emulates the love of Jesus Christ for his church because we are servants. As we saw, the love of Christ impacts the church and it impacts our wives as we demonstrate his love to them. A godly husband's love for his wife is deeply personal. It affects every single area of our lives. And when we are married God's way, our marriage is a representation of how our Lord made us one with him. And all of this for us as husbands and wives requires the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. 
And so husbands, I exhort you today to love your wife in a way that emulates Jesus Christ, in a deeply personal way. Love your wives as if you were taking care of yourself, because in essence, you are. Die for her if the zombie apocalypse comes. But in the meantime, love her by living for her. Live in the power of the gospel. Devote yourself to Jesus Christ. That's how we love our wives. Love her by putting her first in all things, right after your relationship with Christ. Love her by reading your Bible and allowing the Word to change you. Because as you do that, as you grow to maturity in Christ, she's going to be impacted by the love of Christ. Love her by setting aside your dreams if necessary. Think again about the life that Christ lived for us. I don't know that you could say that he was living his dream. He gave himself up. He humbled himself. He devoted himself entirely to the Father's will. And he did it by loving the church. And so as you think about that, consider these questions. Does your wife need you to be home more? Does does your wife need you to get a better job? Are your goals in harmony with hers? And if they're not, what are you willing to do to make them in harmony? Are you willing to set your own dreams aside and to do so joyfully? Does your wife need you maybe this season to watch a little less football and spend a little bit more time with her and with the kids? Does she need you to vacuum? Love your wife by setting the tone in the home. Create an atmosphere of holiness and gentleness and grace that draws her and your children into a deeper relationship with the Lord. In other words, husbands, be the man whom your wife will delight to submit to. And be that man by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Don't be her master, but do be a man of royal bearing. As a member of the, of the court of the King of Kings. Where you're living every single day, every moment for God's glory. Knowing that as a husband, your primary duty in living for the glory of God is to love your wife in the very same sort of way that Christ has loved you and wives your calling is to be is is very clear too revere Christ above all things because he is your king do not worship your husband but respect and submit to him because you love Christ respect him because your Lord Jesus Christ wants you to and says that he will give you a blessing when you do be the helper that God calls you to be the one that God calls you to be, not our culture, not any sort of misunderstanding of what these passages are saying, but the person, the wife that God calls you to be. Because husbands and wives, we need to do what my dad did. 
We need to dismiss what our culture is saying to us, whether it's saying that we are the masters and our wives are the servants, or whether it's saying that we just need to obliterate this word of God and make up our own way. We need to, to, to dismiss all of that. We need to embrace how to be married God's way because the fact is, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, we are equally yoked. We have different tasks that God has set before us, yet we have the same goal, don't we? To revere our Lord Jesus Christ. We need each other to do that, and we need the Holy Spirit. And so, husbands, God commands us to love our wives in a way that emulates the love of Christ for his church. And wives, God created you because we need your help. We need your wisdom. We need your intellect. You are smart. You are equal. You are one with your husbands because God says it is so. And so a godly husband is going to rejoice in you. A godly man will, rejo will rejoice in nurturing you and in caring for you and putting you first. And brothers, let me tell you, a godly wife will rejoice in respecting a man like that. Amen? Let's pray.